Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today my conversation is with Cassandra Good, Associate Editor of the Papers of James Monroe at the University of Mary Washington. Her book, Founding Friendships, Friendships Between Men and Women in the Early American Republic, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Good offers a historical examination of the cross-gender friendships that formed against great social odds and popular opinion that held that these relationships were highly irregular and impossible to maintain chaste. Beginning with the relationship with Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Eloise Payne and William Channing, Charles Loring and Mary Pierce, and their elite circle, good explorers, depths of feelings, the language and tokens of love, propriety, and the social and political risk of cross-gender friendships. These complicated relationships embodied the essential Republican values of equality, freedom, choice, and virtue, and challenged marriage as the ultimate human connection. Through her historical work, Good offers an opportunity to rethink the way cross-gender friendships remain problematic. Here is my conversation with Cassandra Good. Now let me introduce you to the author, Cassandra Good. Hello, Cassandra. Hi. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sh- sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is, is a history, but the gender struggles in your book sound so familiar and contemporary, which is one of the things I want to explore with you today. But before we get into the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Founding Friendships. Well, I've been interested in history for quite a long time. I think I became interested in history of sort of relationships actually in high school when I was doing volunteer work at the local historical society and they asked me to transcribe a woman's diaries. And I was transcribing it and it seemed boring. And then she talked about, this was at the beginning of the Civil War, the soldiers took so-and-so, William or something. I thought, who is this? And I realized her husband had kept diaries They both kept about a dozen volumes. This is 19th century in Maryland, the whole same span of time. So I started looking at his diary for the same day and found out that this being that had been captured was not a person, it was a horse. And that made me start thinking, well, I could actually look at their relationship with one another and how they related to things as a man versus a woman by looking at their diaries. And so... Actually, for my high school senior project, I did a comparison of their diaries the same days on various issues, and I think I was pretty much hooked from there. So in undergraduate and my master's program, I started doing research on early America, and I spent a couple years working at the Smithsonian before going back to graduate school, but I had come across my undergraduate work a description by Margaret Bayard Smith of having to say goodbye. This was a Washington Society woman having to say goodbye to Thomas Jefferson when he was leaving office in 1809. And it sounded so affectionate. She talked about holding his hand. And I thought I had discovered an affair. And I came to realize, actually, that this is just a different way of talking about friendship and sort of opened my eyes to the fact that friendships between men and women were possible. And that became the spark for this book. Your book is set in early in the American Republic. And you talk a little bit before you even get into all these friendships, you talk about how friendship was defined. 
how people thought of friendships generally, and also how it related to marriage. Can you talk a little bit about that for the audience? Yeah, so friendship in the 18th century, certainly earlier in the 18th century, a friend could mean sort of a patron, it could mean a family member, it could mean a business associate. That word can mean a lot of things, but there wasn't as much emotional content tied to it. That doesn't mean that there were not people who had emotional friendships, but usually that term didn't have the same emotional weight until the late 18th century when friendship starts to develop into something in both the British and American contexts that is much more sentimental, involved with feeling, with mutual improvement. And at the same time this is happening, marriage becomes much more emotional too. There's this sort of revolution in the way people think about feeling uh, in this period and become more focused on feeling things deeply. And this is, I'm really talking mostly among elite and upper middling class people that this applies, but marriage for the first time became based on mutual uh, companionship and friendship. Before marriage had pretty much been an economic and reproductive relationship. And then it becomes something tied to friendship and whether a man and woman actually got along and had things in common and had an emotional connection. So those two things are sort of coming together at the same time. Uh, but generally, when you read about friendship in this period, they're talking about often two men being friends with one another. They later, especially in the 19th century, start to see women to women being friends as the sort of ideal form of friendship. But very rarely do they talk about men and women being friends. Emotional relationships between men and women are usually confined to marriage. Now, the idea of a friendship you talked about was mostly sort of a male definition of friendship, that men were had the attributes uh, that could be considered uh, necessary for, for friendship. Right. There was this belief in the 18th century... Uh, among some writers, that women uh, just couldn't be good friends. And that shifts in the 19th century as we get into a culture of sentimentalism where actually women are seen as more capable of being friends than men. So it sort of flips, but it has to do with sort of feelings about innate gender difference in this period. Does it also have to do with the issues of virtue and equality? Uh, some of the things that you talk about that are related to the Republican politic. Right. The people who are most capable of espousing and representing values like virtue and equality in the Republic are seen as men, but women are capable of doing this too. It's really sort of, so that's in the early Republic period after the revolution. It's sort of this period before the revolution where you really see this idea that women can't be friends, uh, that women are not trustworthy enough that they are going to gossip and be unkind to one another and that they can't form. And this is even these ideas about men being friends. This goes back to the ancient Greeks and the ancient Greeks saying only men can be friends and that women are not capable of this. So there's a really long tradition of seeing this as a male relationship. So your book is really situated in a transition period. So there's a lot of uh, movement in how people are perceiving or defining friendship, men and women, the republic, marriage. All these things are all kind of coming together, and you're focusing on the friendship between men and women. Now, what are some of the difficulties 
that there would have been for men and women to be friends, besides overcoming the barrier that women could actually be friends. There were other issues involved. Can you describe some of those issues? Yeah. So one of the challenges goes back to what I mentioned before about the fact that writers in this time were not writing about friendship between men and women. They were writing about same-sex friendships, mostly between men. And people look to etiquette guides and novels as guides to their behavior. And there was simply nothing in the culture suggesting that these relationships, these friendships between men and women were possible. So in the sense that they're looking for models, there aren't any in the culture. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence telling them in popular writings that it's dangerous for men and women to be friends because men are going to use the screen of friendship to seduce women. There's, in early America, seduction novels are very popular where a man seduces a woman, she becomes pregnant out of wedlock, and usually at the end, she dies. And it's quite unhappy. This is, you know, the popular literature of the era. And in many of those novels, that seduction happens through a man pretending to be the woman's friend. So there is this worry here. And I think part of it is people... These writers wanting to say that sexuality needs to be confined to marriage, that emotional fulfillment between men and women needs to be confined to marriage, that there's no other avenue for that outside of friendship. So there's really a lot of policing of sexuality among elite people in America in this period. So outside of what the novels are saying, if a woman is suspected of having any kind of sexual relationship out of wedlock, with a male friend, uh, if she's unmarried and a young woman, she risks losing her reputation and never being able to get married. So the stakes are actually quite high. So even if you didn't weren't having an, uh, a sexual affair, your, a relationship with a man could be construed or misinterpreted as being sexual, and that could just harm you just as well. Right, right. And, you know, there were people that, you know, had relationships that did get misconstrued, that people assumed that there was an affair going on. But usually friends were quite careful to shape their relationships in such a way that people around them were aware, okay, this is a friendship. This is a proper chaste relationship. Now, you uh, you start off your book in your first chapter talking about three uh, specific cross-gender friendships of elite people. These are Elites, uh, men and women, Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson, Eloise Payne and William Channing, and Charles Loring and Mary Pierce. Pierce, what? Well, how are these people? How are these remarkable? Why did you pick these? Yeah, so those particular friend pairs. There's a couple of reasons I chose them, but honestly, the main reason was that I had both sides of the correspondence with these pairs of friends, and it's very rare to find both sides of a correspondence uh, from this period. So if you think about it, if you write somebody a letter, they're keeping that copy from you. And then, so that ends up in one collection. And then if I send a letter to somebody else, they then have my copy. So often, and in the case of these pairs I wrote about, I found the other side of the correspondence in another archive and was just lucky And I think also these are friendships that have tensions in them, that the people argue that women, we see women being assertive and shaping those relationships in ways that we might not expect 
women to be able to in the period. So that's another aspect. And then the fact that certainly people have heard of Abigail Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Some people may have heard of William Ellery Channing, the Unitarian minister, um, friends with Eloise Payne. But people won't have heard of her or of that last pair of friends, Mary Pierce and Charles Loring. So bringing in some less well-known people to round out that picture helps too. And one of the things that you argue about, that in order for these couples, friendship couples, to form friendships, they had to go beyond or push the boundaries of what was acceptable masculinity and femininity. That was a really interesting argument. Talk to me about that. Right. So just like today, there are certain values and uh, characteristics that are considered either masculine or feminine. So in this period, intellect was considered masculine and sort of softness. And I'd say sort of this changes over time, but being very, very emotional, susceptible to cry, things like that were considered feminine. So you do see in these relationships those characteristics getting bent to other genders. So all of the women I'm talking about in these relationships are quite intellectual. And it's a period where women's education is valued, but only to a certain point. They are not supposed to be too intellectual or that makes them masculine. And these women don't seem to worry about that. Uh, And these men, all of the men I write about here were described by other people at various points as having sort of soft or feminine characteristics. And this, in a sense, that boundary crossing makes them more compatible as friends. So this the idea that only a woman with a strong intellect, or what, did they call it more man, mannish woman? They did sometimes do that, or they called it a manly intellect. There was all sorts of advice to women that, you know, you have to show that you're cultured and educated, but don't look like you're too well-educated. Don't look too smart. You don't want to sound smarter than the man you're talking to because that will make you seem too masculine. But the women who actually form friendships with men, with these uh, elite men, were women who actually were very intellectual, and that was kind of what they brought to the friendship also, was a a conversation partner. A man could could talk to... uh, He was a woman who could talk to him is an intellectual equal. Right, and that's part of what men were supposed to, good, you know, elite Republican, smaller Republican, so not a party, but the sort of more democratic values of the country at the time. That kind of man is supposed to look for a well-educated woman who can be a conversation partner as his wife. So it makes sense that also as a friend, that's the sort of thing these men would be looking for. But there's no way in which, as in a marriage, a woman is legally subsumed to her husband. She's legally, in fact, his property. She's not placed in that way at all in a friendship. So that gives her more latitude. And also probably the men, you talk about the men uh, feeling like with a woman as a friend, they could disclose more sensitive sides of themselves, more more of their emotional center uh, with a woman for some reason, they, they just felt right. that maybe they couldn't do it even with their own wives. Yeah, there are certainly people that, you know, there are men that say to female friends, you know, I, you're the only person I'm telling this to, or, you know, occasionally you'll see them basically suggesting that they're closer with this woman than anybody else. They're not saying directly, then my wife, but that's, 
sort of the implication. In some cases, these are unmarried men. So Jefferson is a widower by the time becomes friends with Abigail, although I should note that around the time they become friends is when um, he likely starts having relations with Sally Hemings. So he does have another woman in his life in some sense. We don't know too much about the contours of that, but certainly for men who didn't have wives, they do get the emotional support that they would have liked having from a wife um, through a female friend. But women, too, are getting emotional support from men. Sometimes, again, they get that better from a male friend than their husband. You know, when you describe these relationships and this sort of emotional stuff that's going on and intellectual and conversations and sharing things, it sounds like so many things that you hear about today between, you know, men and women who are attempting to be friends. And one of the things you talk about in your Chapter 3, you talk about how there was a whole dance a social dance that they had to do in order to distinguish between romantic love and friendship and negotiate the risks, the social risks that were associated with, with being friends, cross-gendered friends. Can you talk a little bit about some of that, some of the risks in these friendships? They were real, and, and there was no guidance on how to navigate them. Right. As I was saying before, there's, you know, the risks that they see in novels suggesting, you know, women could be seduced, by male friends, there's a risk of people misinterpreting their relationship, of people gossiping about their relationship if they think that there's something improper and sexual going on in the relationship. And while this had a bigger, you know, reputation has a bigger role for women, particularly in the sort of marriage market, than for men, it can still harm men to be associated with any kind of illicit affair. So, you know, if we think about popular right now with Alexander Hamilton and his affair with a woman, that was clearly not a friendship, but just to show that an affair could damage a man's reputation as it did Hamilton's. And a lot of the men I'm writing about are political figures, so they do have a big public reputation at stake. So what they need to do, what these men and women have to do is broadcast to those around them that this is a chaste and appropriate relationship. So what are some some strategies that they do, do things that they do to to accomplish that? Because you talk about the letter writing, you talk about the social settings and how people would signal to each other and to other people that this was within the bounds of proper society. Yeah, so there's a few different things at play here in terms of, I mean, I think that there's a whole set of symbols that we have to learn to read from the past that, you know, things that we would take for granted in our society today as symbols that people wouldn't understand from outside, same would be true there. So emotional symbols described either in letters or through physical actions. So for instance, The word esteem, when a man or a woman said that he or she esteemed the other, that usually signaled that this was a friendship and not a romantic relationship. So there's a certain vocabulary that goes with romance versus friendship. There are certain rituals in letter writing that uh, you can tell the difference in how people addressed a letter to a romantic partner versus a friend. So there are those aspects. And then there's the larger social positioning within, you know, trying to stay in a larger social circle, not spending time alone as a man and woman 
being in a room alone together or even on a walk alone together could be risky. They need a larger social circle around them. Having, you know, the spouse involved, that can broaden the social circle. And generally, if one of the friends was married, that spouse pretty much had to be at least referenced in letters or tied into the friendship. Even if it was just sort of a rhetorical gesture, just to show there's that approval of the spouse there, the spouse is aware of what's going on. And then another perhaps less expected venue that facilitated these friendships was evangelical religious communities or else the Quaker community. These religious communities really privileged the soul over the body, so they were less concerned about gender differences. They'd say the soul doesn't have a sex and that they were communing as souls and friendship was a path to reaching God for both evangelicals and Quakers, this is the case. Uh, even though they have very different religious beliefs outside of that, um, this allows men and women within church communities to become friends. It, it seemed like from when you described it that they were more uh, open to same-sex uh, friendships in those communities, those religious communities, than they were in the general elite uh, circles. Yeah, absolutely. And this helps us get at some of those slightly less elite people, um, sort of middling class people. I'm still looking at people who are able to write letters so that I have evidence to go from. But certainly for Quakers, um, there are so many examples of male-female friends. And women were also empowered in Quaker community to be able to speak and actually travel and preach in ways that they couldn't in any other religious community. So you have women who are traveling either around the country or going from America to Britain, traveling usually with another female friend, but then also with male friends, and then writing with male friends. And that does not seem to have been controversial or problematic for them. And then with evangelicals, in the evangelical communities at this time, you had a lot more women than men. And they're often not joining that church with the rest of their family. So they're recreating a family out of the other congregants around them. And that means you end up with a lot of male, female, very close friends. So you talked about how that was one of the strategies for sort of, that served as a cover for same, same uh, cross-gender friendships was treating each other as brothers and sisters and acting as uh, they were part of the family like a right. honorary brother or sister, which ended up was a way to kind of explain these relationships. Right. And that's, so that's certainly true in the evangelical community. They'll refer to each other as brother and sister, or even if there's a minister, sometimes it's father. But then even outside of religious communities, you had people using kin terms because if you're signaling this is a family member, you're also signaling this is not a sexual relationship. Uh, so people often did use that kind of language um, to signal the status of that relationship. Now, there's, there's social risks involved in doing these cross-gender rel- friendships, but there is also an emotional risk involved. Right. There's always the, the, the threat that one or the other of the two is going to want more or invest themselves more emotionally in the friendship than the other one. 
Right. And we see that especially in novels in this period. I mean, it's less frequent to actually get evidence in letters or diaries, although we have some evidence of that. But there were two famous novels, European novels, that Americans read at this time quite widely, where the main character fell in love with somebody that they could, that they needed to just be friends with. It had been okay to be in love at the beginning. That person married somebody else. They needed to dial it down to friendship. And those two main characters both ended up dying at the end of the books. One clearly by suicide, the other possibly. And so, you know, Americans see this example of what can happen when you can't properly control your feelings. And it is, you know, this idea that you were supposed to feel so deeply that there was a bodily manifestation of it meant that there's a real physical risk, actually, to feeling upsetting emotions. Hmm. Okay, so there's there's risk, but there's also rewards to these friendships. And one of the rewards you talk about are some of the political and social navigation rewards of having cross-gender friendships in this time period. Can you talk right. a little bit about that? So... A lot of the people I'm talking about in this project, partially because these are the people whose letters get saved um, and often published, are politicians. And frankly, if you look at the local level, not just national, a large number of elite men would have served in some facet of politics in their careers. It's not a huge country. There's a lot of elected officials. People don't serve for that long. So you have a lot of people in and out of political office in this period, and women who become friends with men in positions of political power get access, influence, and information from them to and about politics. So they have this channel, and even if they are married to somebody in politics as well, this just gets them another channel to work through, to share their ideas with, to ask to influence Um, perhaps a political appointment, uh, perhaps a policy decision. And then there's also men who become friends with women married to powerful politicians. And those men are using women as political channels for those same sort of forms of access and influence. Yeah, you're talking about this before the two-party system. Because you you talk about how the two-party system sort of shut women out. Right. And this was no longer as effective. But before the two-party system, women, these elite women, by these cross-gender relationships, were able to influence not only their husbands or their fathers or their brothers, but influence other, other men on behalf of their brothers or their fathers. So it right. was political. It had political power. Yeah, and so there's a couple things to point out there. One, so a lot of people don't realize because we hear about two different, you know, sort of loosely call them parties in the early republic, the Federalists and the Republicans or Democratic Republicans, but these are more like factions. So they don't have any apparatus for getting consensus. They don't have a party leader who can round up votes. So the way you get people swayed to vote for something is meeting one-on-one talking over dinner. Congress is in session for only a few months at a time. They are pretty much in session four hours a day on the days they're even in town. So a lot of the politicking is happening outside of Congress. And then even when they are in session, there's women sitting on the floor with them while they're in session, talking to them, hearing the speeches, commenting to them. 
So they're not on the official record in that way, but they clearly have access to their male friends and husbands uh, and family members that way. Another thing to point out, we've seen there's some other great studies, like by Catherine Algor, for instance, that show us the way women are able to get patronage appointments for people in their family. Um, and that is usually the way we hear about women's political involvement. But I think this really went far beyond that. Like I was saying, in terms of sitting in Congress and providing opinions, um, it's not just getting appointments. It's actually discussing policy issues, uh, making suggestions. There were advisors. Yeah, I think that there are men who, particularly you see John Adams saying that both his wife and his friend, Mercy Otis Warren, he considers to be politically astute and people he's going to listen to about politics. Okay. So how did these uh, people, these friendships, back to the friendships we were talking about, Abigail Adams and Jefferson and Eloise Payne and William Channing, how did they express their friendships? What were some of the evidences that you had besides the letter writing? Did you have other, did you find other uh, expressions of friendship? Right, so letters are the easiest avenue, but there's also objects that people exchange with one another. So I have a chapter focusing on the sort of objects that male-female friends are able to exchange. Uh, Some of those do relate to Jefferson, but there's, in we don't have, you know, physical remnants of this necessarily, but Jefferson and uh, did shopping for Abigail in Paris and sent her things in London. She was paying him for that, so it's not necessarily gifts. But you have other women who have portraits of Jefferson to commemorate their friendship. They have a, a common friend who is a artist, John Trumbull, and he paints portraits uh, for these two female friends of Jefferson. Then there's other people that will actually give a portrait to a friend of the opposite sex. So portraits were, like, really important. From reading your book, it seemed like having your portrait made, giving your portrait to someone, receiving it from somebody was really pretty standard or big. Or can, can you talk a little bit about the value around that? Right. So this is a period before photography. So you can't easily give an image of yourself unless it is a painting to somebody else. Now, the people that get portraits done are the elite. This is It's quite expensive to get a portrait done in this period. So we're really not talking about most Americans that have access to this. But for elite people who can afford portraits, generally they're commissioned for family members or to hang in the home. But I found plenty of examples of people who gave portraits to friends and this is a way of giving, you know, an image of yourself if you're living apart to that friend. So it's a virtual representation of you that can be there with them. Uh, they're not giving miniatures because those have romantic associations. In general, that's something that uh, because these objects, if you think about a miniature, it's quite small. The way you interact with it, you have to hold it up close to look at it. You might wear it either in your pocket or around your neck, so it's close to your heart. And there are descriptions in literature at the time about how miniatures are romantic. So, and those could be just as expensive as portraits if you get a very fine miniature. So really we're talking, you know, if male-female friends are going to exchange an image, it's generally a full-size, you know, larger portrait. So what, what are these friendship albums you talk about? 
Right. So this is obviously a much less expensive way of leaving a trace of yourself with a friend. This really gets started in the 1820s in America, so towards the end of the period I'm talking about in the book. But mostly young women, some men, purchase these albums. Uh, increasingly, there were specially made albums for this purpose that would have blank pages, and you would take them around to your friends and ask for them to write tributes. A little bit in the way we think about people signing a yearbook, except they're generally not writing. Were they scrapbooks? Well, no, they're not the same as scrapbooks. Sometimes there were things that got pinned into there. Um, there might be a painting that somebody does. Sometimes a woman did a painting and put it in her own album. Sometimes a friend would do a painting and put it in her album. There might be locks of hair from friends that get pinned in there. A lot of it is poetry that is copied from published sources and then signed and dated um, from a friend. So they're not writing completely original messages, but that choice of what message to put in there, just like how we agonize over what reading card to give somebody for their birthday, that's the kind of agonizing that people had to do over what to put in a friend's album that would best capture their relationship. Okay, so in other words, I have an album and I give, give it to you and say, here, please uh, put something in my in my album, and then you've right. got to like sweat it going, what do I put in here? Okay. <laughs> yeah, and there were newspaper stories complaining about this, especially men complaining about having to do this. And this is a space also where, because poetry in general becomes a space where people can express more than they feel. So they can be more effusive emotionally in poetry than they could in prose. And so men could write entries that were much more emotional and might sound more romantic than they could put in a letter into these albums. There's not the same worries there. Okay, okay. And women kept these or men kept these also? It was primarily women, but I found some examples by men. A lot of the women who kept these were keeping them when they were away at a female academy. There were a lot of academies that sprang up in the late 18th, early 19th century to educate women. They would move away to go there for their schooling, and before they left, they would have all the people they met sign their albums. Now, once the uh, you have a two-party system and you've got a more established political machine and women are relegated to the home, more to the home. The home becomes more of a central place where women are expected to be. What happens to the formation of friendships among elite men and women? Well, you know, there hasn't been any concerted study of this, of any other time period in American history on male-female Friendship. So I do have a sense that these friendships continue. It's not that men and women can't still be friends. It just doesn't have the same political import. Uh, there are still women who are accessing political influence through male friends, but I don't think it has the same weight that it did before. Uh, it doesn't have the same larger, uh, these friendships don't have the same larger political valence of sort of representing values of the new republic. Um, a lot of the friendships you end up seeing in the antebellum period, as you have more women writers and um, women who, you know, maybe elite women that are somehow forced into earning an income or who become active as reformers, those women have more opportunities to meet men. And those are the women that you see being part of circles of male-female friends. So the transcendentalists, there's lots of women who are friends with those male transcendentalists. I write a little bit about Elizabeth 
Peabody because she lives long enough that she shows up, you know, in the early Republic. Uh, she's friends with Lily Mallory Channing. She's friends with all the leading transcendentalists going on through the 19th century and clearly has a big influence on them. So the friendships continue. It's just what they mean that changes. You also talk about its relationship to marriage and how marriage, was, that it's sort of a, that these cross-gender relationships in a way, and they're, they're pretty passionate as far as friendships could be, uh, and they're expressing a lot of feeling and a lot of connection and intellectual uh, friendship. But you talk about how they challenge the, the ethos of the era where marriage uh, romantic love and marriage were sort of the pinnacle of human relationships, that that was the the goal of, of human expression was in yeah. marriage. I think even more so than today, where you think about happy endings to movies and books, it's marriage. And that was certainly the case in uh, a lot of the literature of the day, that a happy ending meant a marriage. But... There was also just the fact that for women, if they didn't marry because, for the most part, they can't have a profession where they earn money or they can only earn very little, unless they have a very wealthy father or sibling that's willing to support them, they have to get married. So it's not just their emotional fulfillment. It's sort of a practical thing that this is what you do as an adult. You get married. And that is the overriding focus of what makes you an adult, what makes you filled emotionally as a person in this period. And so I think friendship actually shows that that's not the only place people could be fulfilled emotionally, that they could get people to help them with the sorts of things that we think only family or spouses could help with, um, that there's actually other avenues for people to find fulfillment and happiness and even love. Why is it that in reading your book and reading, you did a really good job of sort of getting inside these people's heads or their hearts and, you know, and negotiating these relationships and trying to make them uh, acceptable and may help them so that they would, and that, so they would work for them. Um, why is it in reading your book, it just seems like, those same issues are still around. Yeah, and I wondered this throughout working on this project. I kept thinking, you know, I made a real effort not to assume that anything was the same then as now just because it felt familiar to me. Um, it felt to, really familiar. It felt yeah, like, oh, my goodness, I've heard these stories before. Do I do I send him an email or do not send him an email? What will he think if I send him an email? You know, will his wife read the email? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think the fact is it's not just that I was imposing how things are today. I, I really think that there are similarities there. And in some ways there shouldn't be, given that uh, our norms about sexuality and gender have changed drastically but what hasn't changed is our belief in the culture that marriage is the ultimate and ideal relationship between an adult man and woman, and that this is what brings somebody happiness in our society. So as I mentioned, movies, books, um, there's been some writing. There was a great series in Slate several years ago that talked about why is it so difficult for men and women to be friends. And you'll see these psychological studies coming out all the time saying, oh, it's impossible for men and women to be friends. So now it's not just sort of the popular literature. There's 
some psychological literature saying this. So I think that there's still these barriers in terms of we assume that men and women must automatically be sexually attracted to one another. And, you know, given that there's people that are attracted to the same sex now, that shouldn't be an assumption anymore. Why is same-sex friendship not subject to these same questions if we know that men can be attracted to men and women can be attracted to women? So. I think the reason I picked your book was because it was about friendship, because I think there's a real shortage of of any study uh, of friendship, whether it's historical or otherwise. There's very, uh, that really takes it, you know, seriously, and particularly cross-gender friendships. It really considers it as a a valuable source of fulfillment and uh, human connection, I think. So that's why I picked your book, because I was like, oh, somebody's doing something on friendship. Because if you put into a, a Google search or something, you put in relationship problems, what are you going to get? You're going yeah, to get, get yeah. marital dating problems. You're not going to get hardly very much at all about relationship problems within friendships that you're trying to maintain. Maybe, right. you know, uh, or that are important to you. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, there are some sociologists and psychologists who are taking these relationships seriously, coming at them with the assumption that they are possible. I think just this assumption that attraction is going to make them impossible is part of the problem we have to get past. If we can understand that men and women can be friends and be attracted to one another, or one could be attracted and the other's not, or that might come in and out of that relationship, if we can understand that, then I think that opens us up to believing, yes, these relationships are possible. Some kind of sexual attraction does not cancel out any possibility here. And so there are people who, in fact, argue that it's partially that attraction that gives some kind of spark and makes these friendships more exciting than others. Right, right. And I, and I think there's a, maybe there's a sort of there's sort of a sexual hang up there, isn't there? Fear of our sexuality and all it means that it's not yeah, just it's not right. just you know sex having sex that sexuality is much broader and bigger than that that it and is, I think also that love is broader and bigger than romantic right. or sexual love right right we don't have a good word I and mean, we use the word platonic I don't think it certainly didn't apply to the time period yeah, I you write talked about. about that you talk about that explain right. it for the and audience why is it not- so. Platonic in that period meant romantic, but not consummated. So that doesn't, that still means there's attraction involved. And I think platonic for us now also has the association with Plato and an unreachable ideal in some other realm, right? So we don't tend to use platonic that often or that seriously. I don't think we have, even now, great emotional vocabulary for saying I love you to a friend. Right. It's either we either over platonic to me sounds like you're over spiritualizing it. You know, mm-hmm. this idea that yeah, that it's just these souls that are disembodied that don't have any physical needs or anything. And that that clearly is not what friendship should do. It should not you know, void your your human your other parts of your whole humanity. Right. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I'm encouraged to see that there are people studying this in contemporary society, too. I hope there will be more historical studies on this because it's really not something, I think partially because of our present-day prejudices and preoccupations, not something people have studied in the past. 
Do you, do you know, when when was the first, uh, do you know of novels in the 19th century where there was a positive cross-gender relationship described? Yes, there, yeah, I, I write about just, I have a couple examples in the book of relationships between men and women that, you know, seem to be either casual friendships or real friendships that stay a friendship, don't end up falling apart or becoming a romance. But they're usually not the primary relationship in the novel. And they're most, usually sort of a side or framing relationship. Isn't the usually the woman or the man offering advice to their friend about the romantic relationship they're having with a third person? Sometimes that is the case, and that actually happens in reality as well. And, I mean, you could say in some of these novels where there's sort of a framing relationship that's a friendship between a man and woman that we learn almost nothing about, but it's a frame that makes the story move forward, that perhaps that is something quite important. I would say, since we don't really see that as the center of the plot, I mean, the the whole courtship novel, that whole is a marriage plot. It has to end in marriage or tragedy, basically, and that's... You're not going to end it with this man and woman were friends and then they stayed friends and they lived happily ever after. There's no narrative arc to that. Well, I think one of the things that was interesting about your book, too, was you're really having to deal with quickly shifting uh, vocabularies and meanings of words like esteem, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what is a friend? I mean, that 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 you could even just do a historical study just on the word friend and and find how it was moving through culture and changing as everything around it was changing. Yeah, and there are great studies. There are definitely historical friendships of studies of friendship, uh, but it's generally same-sex friendship for both Britain and America in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so you can get, you know, if, uh, listeners want to hear more about, read more about friendships in general, there are works on that. Uh, a lot of the recent work in American literature on friendship, same-sex friendships, has been from a sort of queer studies angle, looking at whether there was whether these friend, whether friendship between people of the same sex was actually a way of covering for a romantic relationship. But they they don't have the term homosexual in this period, right? So you're so that's another issue that you have to deal with too. Is someone could say, well, all you know, these uh, same-sex. Uh, relationships or covers for what we now would call homosexuality. Yeah, and I think in some cases they weren't, and in others they weren't. Right, and uh, also what was acceptable in terms of within a friendship, how much physicality was actually acceptable right. within a friendship has changed a lot. Yeah, and I think people did pretty much accept, uh, especially with young unmarried men, a pair of them or a pair of young unmarried women, they could share beds with one another there seemed to be an acceptance that there could be a physical aspect to this relationship, and their letters are much more emotionally effusive than letters between male-female friends because they clearly don't see a risk in the same way there. And it seems that as long as those people went ahead and got married, that society wasn't too concerned right, uh, in general about those relationships, as long as they went ahead through their prescribed roles. So there are certainly people that had same-sex sexual relationships in this period, and they might have gone on to marry somebody of the opposite sex. Okay. What are you working on now? Are you still going to go on with this, uh, your interest in, in relationships? I think it's a fascinating study. Yeah, so I'm actually moving from friendship 
relationships to family relationships. While I was working on this book, I came across several men and women who were part of George Washington's family. Uh, his nephew, Bushrod, a kind of unusual name, who inherited Mount Vernon. And then he had no children of his own, but he had four step-grandchildren. And I came across a couple of those uh, women who had male friends. And I started wondering about what happened to his family. What happens to the descendants or at least next generation of a man who's venerated almost as a king, um, has almost a sacred figure in American politics and culture in, long into the 19th century? What do they think their public image should be? What is their role? Um, are there fears about these people being involved in politics? So in some ways, you know, there are some similar questions about relationships and politics that will come up in that study. But this will be more of a uh, sort of group family biography of the Custis and Washington descendants. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for your time. It's been really, really, really interesting. Thank you to you and to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I would like to hear from you. Please drop me a line through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.